The Women Like You podcast would like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional owners of the land we walk on. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I used to have a nickname for my liver back in med school. What's that? What's the nickname? <laughs> Churchill, because it was... <laughs> I just always imagined back in back in med school days that my we'll little them on of, the beaches. Yes. <laughs> a lot of work to do back uh, back 20 years ago in my medical school days. Yes, it is Women Like You, the podcast for women who hate working out but know they should. I'm Gab, I'm an audio producer and journalist. And I'm Sarah, I'm a GP and I work in fertility and women's health. If you want to see results from exercise, actual, tangible results, there are some important health markers that you can actually use to track your progress that aren't things like weight loss or your clothing size or seeing changes to the way you look in the mirror. We're getting stuck into the numbers that really matter. Last episode, we looked at blood pressure and heart rate. And if you are listening out of sequence, that episode is called Toned Abs Don't Matter. Your blood pressure does. Yes, it does. Uh, Today, Dr. Sarah, you're going to talk us through glucose and insulin levels, uh, something called lipids which I love saying, lipids and cholesterol, or maybe that's the same thing, Um, and and why these particular metrics matter. Yes, Um, we are. But before we get to that, can I play you something? Mm. So, you know, last episode you introduced us to the old school way of measuring blood pressure. What's that machine called? Oh, yeah, the uh, the old sphygmo, (laughs) sphygmo manometer. (laughs) Manometer. Uh, so uh, this oh. is this is not the electronic. It's still got, I assume, a strap that goes around the arm, but it's the one the the hand pump one. Yeah, not the one that you strap around and press. Well, they're both. Press go. I, yeah, they're they're both sphygmos of a sort. Sphygmos, <laughs> just still. Who thought of this word? <laughs> well, uh, after that episode, my beautiful sister-in-law Elle uh, got so excited. She sent me a text to say that my niece who is not yet four, that is one of her favourite words to pronounce. <laughs> uh, I just want to play it for you right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> Holy cow, that is the most adorable thing. <laughs> oh, she's gorgeous. Oh, also, she nailed it. She like, really that did. Is, I couldn't say it. I couldn't that is, say it. That is easily a word that you'll get tongue-tied with. She's incredible. <laughs> There is like future doctor, yeah, future doctor, or just future linguist or future knower of really hard words to say. Um, There was a word that she said when she was eighteen months old that you'll love, which she also totally nailed. Um, Pediatric dermatologist. (laughs) She could say that at eighteen months old. Pediatric dermatologist. Pediatric dermatologist. (laughs) So good. Anyway, thank you, Elle. Thank you. Highlight of my day. Beautiful stuff. All right, Doctor. So we actually covered a little bit of this in an episode we did on risk factors for type 2 diabetes. Mm. Um, But can you give us a quick recap on what the hell glucose and insulin levels are and why they're actually important? Absolutely. So insulin is a hormone that is produced by your pancreas. And in simple terms, you can think of it as the key that allows the cells of your body to utilize the energy that you derive from your diet. So insulin is a key player 
in developing type 2 diabetes, but at the same time, you cannot survive without it. So like a lot of systems in the body, it's all about getting that balance right. Mm. So I thought we would uh, run through some of the key principles about maintaining that balance. So a little insulin and glucose metabolism in a nutshell. (laughs) That's what we like. That's what we like. Science in a nutshell, nutshell. please. (laughs) Science in a nutshell. (laughs) The podcast. Sorry. Sorry. I promise to be good. I'll I'll be good. I'll I'll stop distracting you. No, no. Distract away. So the food that you eat gets broken down into sugars and then these sugars will enter your bloodstream from the digestive system and that then signals your pancreas to release insulin. Now, insulin then will help the blood sugar enter the body cells so that you can actually use it for energy. And insulin then also signals the liver to store some blood sugar for later use, which is pretty awesome. Yes. Once your blood sugar enters cells and then subsequently the level of sugar in your blood decreases, your insulin will decrease too. So it's kind of a a, a mechanism. Sugar goes up, insulin goes up, sugar goes down, insulin goes down. Okay. Low insulin levels will then alert the liver to release some stored sugars so that there's always energy available, even if you haven't eaten for a little while. And that's one of the reasons why things like intermittent fasting, when done you know, in a sensible way with medical guidance, is not dangerous for most healthy people because we've got other places to derive some energy from. But that's basically when everything is working smoothly and this fine-tuned system can kind of get out of whack pretty quickly, particularly if a lot of sugar enters the bloodstream from your diet. So if you're having, you know, unfortunately, if you're having lots and lots of sweets, lots and lots of carbs, then the pancreas has to pump out a lot more insulin to get all of that sugar into your cells. And then over time, the cells basically stop responding to all of that insulin. I kind of think that they become deaf to the signal and that ultimately leads to this condition called insulin resistance. The pancreas then just keeps on making more and more insulin to try and get these cells to respond. And eventually the pancreas can't keep up and subsequently we get blood sugar rising even if there's plenty of insulin about. And ultimately the stage is then set for something called glucose intolerance, which we often describe as pre-diabetes and ultimately then type 2 diabetes will follow. Okay, so yeah, basically once that kind of finely tuned balance starts to become unbalanced is when Mm. you start to see these problems happen. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what should my insulin and glucose levels be? Like what's healthy? What am I aiming for? So your fasting insulin levels, which we measure in milli-international units. What? um, (laughs) Milli, milli, milli milli-international units. Um, It should be less than 25. So that's that's the number. (laughs) That's the number you look at. Sorry. Sorry, no, no. less than 25. <laughs> less than 25. So, And look, ideally less than 10 when we're in a fasting state, so when we haven't eaten for a while. And levels that are above 25, you could be considered as developing insulin resistance. Fasting, so, so hang on. So, so fasting insulin levels should be less than 25. There's probably a big ideally jump there less between, than 10. Yeah, big jump there from 25 to 10 though, or big decrease from 25 to 10. I don't quite understand that. The, the the numbers will go up much higher once you eat. So okay, once you right, right. once you've had something to eat, you're you know you're even in a in a healthy in a healthy specimen like yourself. Um, when when you've eaten, you know your non-fasting insulin levels, you know may go up as high as sixty. Okay, okay. But kind of, you know, ten to twenty, ten to twenty-five. Okay, less than ten, ideal. Above sixty, 
you might be in a bit of trouble. Not so much. Okay. No. Okay. Fasting glucose levels or your fasting sugars should typically be between 3.9 millimoles per litre, so a different different <laughs> measurement. You don't need to you don't need to remember all of that. <laughs> millimoles. You're just making up words now, doctor. <laughs> millimoles per litre. Uh, so between 3.9 and 5.6. Okay. When your fasting glucose levels start to creep up from there, so when they're in that kind of 5.6 to 6.9 range, that's when we would strongly recommend that you take a look at some of your lifestyle factors, and that would typically involve perhaps some dietary modification, weight loss if the patient is overweight or obese, and definitely increased activity, increased exercise. Okay. Yeah. And then once that fasting level exceeds 7 millimoles on two separate tests, that's when we would diagnose a patient with type 2 diabetes. Okay. Mm. But you may have also heard of something called the glucose tolerance test, um, which is a test that it, it tests the body's response to a glucose load. So it's not just looking at what the levels are when you're fasting, but what the levels are when your body is challenged by a specific glucose load. And it's a three-part blood test over two hours. So you'll go in fasting, you'll have a fasting blood test done, you'll be given this pretty Disgusting. terrible sweet, yeah. sweet yeah. drink to drink. It is awful. Um, and then you'll have another blood test at one hour and two hours post-challenge. And that can also be done in conjunction with your insulin levels as a diagnostic test. So that way you do get not just what your fasting levels are, but what your levels are like in a non-fasting state. Particularly when you've, yeah, you've really put a glucose oh, yeah, load like, on the system. <laughs> absolutely. It's like drinking, like it's like, yeah, it's like drinking 75 yeah. mils of, of like Pure. undiluted cordial. It's, it's, <laughs> it's rank. Oh. Everyone hates it. And it's uh, for any of our pregnant women out there or, or mums out there, they will have definitely routinely had this test done during pregnancy. Um, but I should point out that the glucose cutoffs for diagnosing gestational diabetes are quite different. So if you are pregnant, make sure that you discuss these results with your doctor or midwife. Okay. And you mentioned uh, so before the the glucose tolerance test, you mentioned you know the fasting glucose levels that we're aiming for. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we actually test those? Is, is that something that we can do at the doctor or? Yeah, blood test. Just a, oh, so right. typically, yeah, fasting fasting blood test. Ideally, fasting about twelve hours, ten to fourteen, and essentially most people will have a normal dinner and then fast overnight and go and have their bloods done before they eat brekkie in the morning. Okay, and that's when ideally uh, you'd be wanting to be below 10. Insulin mm-hmm. levels below 10, fasting sugar levels between about four and five and a half. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, so what, I guess, are the main risk factors then for diabetes? You know, if you are, when your fasting glucose levels are starting to exceed seven millimoles. Mm. Did I get that right? Millimoles. You did. Millimoles. Yeah. So if you're starting to get above that, um, and obviously <laughs> where you're, or, you know, you're, you're pre-diabetes, you're pushing towards that. What are the main risk factors, risk factors there for diabetes? Well, diabetes typically does run in families. So if you have an immediate family member with it, you do have a genetic predisposition to the condition, but there are some other risk factors which are important to keep in mind. Look, diabetes increases for everybody as we get older. Your your risk of diabetes increases. So if you are aged over 55, then that's probably a good reason to go and get your sugars checked. Mm -hmm. Or if you are over 45 years of age and are overweight, or if you have high blood pressure, and we chatted a bit about blood pressure last week, or if you're over 35 years of age and are Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander background, come from the Pacific Islands, the Indian subcontinent, or Chinese cultural background, 
we know these particular groups of people are at risk of developing diabetes earlier. Okay. And then specifically for women, if you have given birth to a big bubba, so I'm talking a 4.5 kilos or larger baby, mm-hmm. which is nine pounds in the old money, or if you had gestational diabetes when you're pregnant, or if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, all of these conditions are strongly associated with insulin resistance and do mean that you are perhaps more prone to developing diabetes down the track. Wow. And it's interesting you mentioned um, PCOS. Sorry, that's just, mm. you know, my, the, the lingo. I'm not sure if you know that, Sarah, that, you know, we, we call it PCOS in the, in the, the biz. Old, the old PCOS. Um, <laughs> polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yes. Um, you mentioned on this pod a while back that, that there's actually quite a large number of women who have PCOS. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like 10%. That's huge. Yeah. Okay. I, so my, also, my hands yeah. are up in the air. You can't see that, but I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, uh, I'm a picos lady. You're a picoser. It's yeah. It's really, really common. So it's also, you know, nothing that you need to feel any stigma about because you know one in one in ten women, um, but it does mean that you are at an increased risk of developing diabetes if you don't look after some of these modifiable risk factors. Mm, okay. And ultimately, you know, there's not much that we can do about our genes. No, no. There's very little that we can do about the number of birthdays that we've had. Yeah. But we can work on some of the modifiable risk factors. And exercise is, you know, ultimately one of the absolute best ways to reduce your risk of developing insulin resistance and diabetes. Before we get to exercise, because this Mm. obviously is a podcast for women um, who hate working out, but no, they should. um, There is an awesome little risk assessment tool that you introduced to us um, back in the diabetes episode. We love a risk assessment tool. We do. Any kind of calculator. It's like when you go on like the Money Smart website and you want to punch in things to work out tax or home loans or car loans or whatever. (laughs) Wow, you don't have a party, don't you? (laughs) Let's all go around to Gab's place on Saturday night. We're going to use some calculators. (laughs) Shut up. I love to research. That's my jam. I know. Um, No, they're really, and they are really helpful because it can be, it can be all a bit overwhelming. So mm. yeah, so there's a great one uh, called the OzD Risk Calculator. Um, We'll pop a link to it in the show notes. You just, you know, you type in a few of your metrics and it will give you an estimation of what your chances are of developing diabetes in the future. And that can really help you to, you know, perhaps instigate particular lifestyle modifications to reduce your risk. Okay, let's get to exercise then. So how can exercise actually help, uh, particularly with some of these uh, glucose and insulin situations? So during exercise, your body is going to burn glycogen, which is a form of glucose that you store in your muscles. And then after exercise, your muscles want to replenish their glycogen stores so that you've got more glycogen for the next little bout of activity. And ultimately, the more glycogen that you burn during some exercise or activity, the longer that the body's insulin sensitivity is improved. And some studies have indicated that this improvement, depending on how much exercise and how high the intensity is and how long you exercise for, but you may reap the benefits of improved insulin sensitivity for as long as 16 to 48 hours, which is huge. It's massive. And, it also, and if you think then, if you are kind of dosing up your exercise every day or every second day and, and getting regular exercise, then you're actually going to achieve a more chronic reduction in insulin resistance and improvement in insulin sensitivity longer term. Yeah, that's amazing. And I guess that's why, you know, current health guidelines for recommended amount of daily physical activity is, you know, 22 to 44 minutes of moderate 
physical activity, moderate exercise. So, you know, that would be something like, you know, going for a walk or, or a ride or, you know, a very gentle jog, something like that. Yeah. Um, I guess that's why is, is it's not a it's not a huge amount, but clearly if you're doing that consistently as close to every day as you can, yeah. this is this is why that's the recommendation. Well, one Absolutely. Of the, one of the many reasons why, obviously. To be sufficiently active. <laughs> We're still going to get those T-shirts made. <laughs> yes, yes. Do we get to talk about lipids? You said it, sister. Yes. yes. Well, okay. What are lipids? Why are they just a fun word to say? Yeah. So I think when we're so, – so lipids are – cholesterol is a type of lipid. And I think there's often this assumption that, like, all cholesterol is bad. You've got to watch your cholesterol. Don't eat too much cholesterol. Make yes. sure you check your cholesterol. Cholesterol is not all bad. Cholesterol is – it's a fat-like substance in the body. It's We produce it ourselves. We make our own cholesterol. Oh. But it's also found in the food that we eat. So it's not all about food. Right. Okay, that's interesting. It's funny you say that about cholesterol, cholesterol our, our – um our idea of cholesterol being all bad. I feel the same about like insulin and glucose. I just immediately assume that all of that is bad. <laughs> we should avoid and, and all of it. But <laughs> exactly, we're all, well, I think we've all been you know terrified into submission. Mm. Um, but you know you need cholesterol. Cholesterol okay. helps us to produce hormones. It helps us to synthesize vitamin D. It helps us to maintain a healthy nervous system. But the kicker is that we actually don't need that much of it to function well. Right. And what's really important is the ratio of the different types of cholesterol in our body that counts. So too much of certain lipids or cholesterol can increase our risk of heart disease. But as I was saying before, it's not all about your diet. About 75% of the cholesterol in your body is made by your liver. Your liver's doing some some heavy lifting. Like, yeah, okay. Thank you, liver. We, we keep coming back to the liver. Your liver is really important. I mean, I put I put the liver under a lot of stress. I'm doing it right now with a <laughs> a low carb, a no carb beer. But yeah, yeah, there you go. Well, <laughs> at least at least it's not also dealing with the extra carbohydrates. But anyway, um, a smaller amount of cholesterol does come from our diet. So ultimately, much like when we were talking about you know sugars, insulin, etc., it's the combination of your genes, your diet and your lifestyle that will ultimately dictate what your lipid levels are. Say lipid levels 10 times, sorry. Lipid levels. <laughs> okay, so you talked there about cholesterol. Obviously, we know about bad cholesterol. That's kind of been drummed into us. You say that there is good cholesterol, obviously, you know, so long yeah. as we keep it in balance. What does that actually mean, though? I know you love a bit of tasty medical jargon. So we're going to talk <laughs> lipoproteins. Lipoproteins. Um, lipoproteins. I think we covered off a little bit on lipoproteins in a previous episode, but mm. we're going to talk low-density lipoproteins and high-density lipoproteins. So like lipo- low-density living and high-density living. <laughs> Very much. Absolutely. <laughs> Pretty much. You can bang on, actually. So, so lipo means fat. Uh-huh. So a lipoprotein is when a fat including cholesterol, combines with proteins. And that's how fats are carried around in our bloodstream. And as we said before, it's all about the density. So low-density lipoproteins, or LDLs, is commonly known as the bad cholesterol. Some people remember this as lousy cholesterol, L for lousy, L for low density. Yep. Um, and your high-density lipoproteins, or HDL, are often known as your good cholesterol or your helpful cholesterol. Okay. So too much LDL can lead to the development of atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries, and ultimately to heart disease. Whereas your HDL is like a little helpful scavenger and 
ducks around them, removing fatty deposits in the arteries and delivering them to old mate the liver again. Again. <laughs> distraction and clearance. This is why. Care for your liver, people. Care really, for your liver. Really punching above its weight. <laughs> it is. It is. I used to have a nickname for my liver back in med school. What's that? What's the nickname? <laughs> Churchill, because it was... <laughs> I just always imagined back in back in med school days that my we'll little on of, the beaches. Yes, <laughs> a lot of work to do back uh, back twenty years ago in my medical school days. Such um, a nerd. <laughs> I love that so much. Good old Churchill. Good old uh, Churchill fighting the good fight. Okay, absolutely. So even if you have if you have normal LDL. Uh-huh. normal levels of bad cholesterol, but you have rubbish HDL levels, then because you've got a, a your ratio of good to bad is in favour of the bad, then that's bad. And, yes. Okay. And consequently, if even if you have higher LDL levels, but you've got, you know, cranking HDL levels, then the balance is in favour of HDL, which is ultimately far more protective for your heart. Okay, and is there, I mean, when you're talking about um, kind of maintaining higher LDL, oh, sorry, higher HDL, is there a way to do that like through diet? Like, Yeah, there, absolutely. Like- so, so typically having more unsaturated fats as opposed to saturated fats will, will help that balance. But again, remember, 75% of this is being produced and, and manufactured by your liver in the first place. So it's not right. all about diet. But uh, yeah, absolutely. There are you know, healthier eating. The Mediterranean diet has been shown to to be somewhat helpful in improving HDL levels, and even moderate alcohol consumption. I think there were some papers about you know glass of red wine may help to increase your HDL levels as well. Oh yeah, I can get behind that. So, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so can Churchill. Ah yes, good on you, Churchill. <laughs> Churchill um, gets behind that all the time, um, not because. He- he has any other choice. Um, okay, I've heard you mention about a really fun word called triglycerides. Yes. What are they and how do they relate to this discussion yep. about cholesterol? So triglycerides are fats from the food that we eat and they are then carried in the blood. In fact, most of the fats that we consume, so your butter, your animal fats, oils, and, and those can be you know oils from nuts or oils from avocado or yeah yeah actual but, you know, oils or yeah oils ain't oils um <laughs> they they travel around our body in the form of triglycerides mm-hmm. so excess calories eating a little bit too much yep. excess alcohol excess sugar in the body can also turn into triglycerides so yes we consume them in the form of fats but we can also make them from excess carbohydrates and alcohol and excess calories that we don't know where to put them. Wow. What's responsible for making them? Is it the, don't uh, tell me it's Churchill. <laughs> don't tell me it's, it's Churchill. Churchill. It's, it's Churchill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stop, Churchill. You've got to let it go. You've got so, to be on our side here, mate. <laughs> I know. He's fighting them in the trenches, baby. Um, so your high triglyceride levels are associated with a collection of disorders known as metabolic syndrome. Have you... Have we covered? I don't think we've covered metabolic syndrome. No, talk to me. What is metabolic syndrome? So it's kind of a precursor condition, I guess. It means that you have an increased risk of developing diabetes, stroke, or heart disease. Oh, yeah, not good. No, Um, but again, it's a it's a precursor, so it's it's often modifiable and it's often treatable with lifestyle interventions. Okay. 
So you basically will be diagnosed as having metabolic syndrome if you have any three of the following factors. So central obesity, so excess fat around the stomach, abdomen, mm-hmm. high blood pressure, okay, higher than normal glucose levels, low HDL, and high triglycerides. Okay, so at like at least three or any of the three of those. So okay. if you if you tick off any three of those, and that's not difficult to do. If yep. you know if you do, if you are the apple shaped person like myself, mm-hmm. you know not the not the hourglass. If you're mm-hmm. the apple shaped person and you do start to to gain some extra some extra kilos around the middle, and you've got a bit of high blood pressure because it runs in your family, and bang, you've got that, yep. and you've also noted that your triglycerides are elevated, then that's enough to give you a diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. And I think that's really, it's a it's a time to intervene. Okay, okay. So, I mean, realistically, out of that list, the only one that you could possibly know off the top of your head without getting any, um, you know, medical work done. Any is, tests done. Yeah, is, yeah, is just, you know, looking at the where you store fat on your that's body. Right. And, um, and I think way back in that diabetes episode, we talked about waste measurements as being a, an independent risk factor for the development of diabetes. And the goal is that women should be aiming for a waist measurement of 80 centimetres or less, not because you look better that way, yeah. not because you'll fit into different sized clothes or whatever, but because once you start to increase your waist measurement, you are potentially on a pathway to developing metabolic syndrome and therefore potentially on a pathway to developing heart disease, stroke, diabetes. Yep. And with that 80 centimetres, obviously, that's just kind of like a general human population for women. It's it's not specific to particular um, cultural backgrounds as well. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Of course, if you're concerned about any of this, doctor is the place to go. Um, Yes. Okay. Right. So... Can you be genetically prone to things like high triglycerides? Yeah, well, again, because it is, you know, the the triglycerides are not only in what you eat, but you are producing them. You could be a very, very efficient triglyceride machine. Mm. And uh, But there are also lifestyle factors that are at play. So a sedentary lifestyle will increase your triglyceride levels. A diet that's high in saturated fats, added sugars, and too much alcohol can absolutely pump your triglyceride levels up. Okay. I say okay as I take a sip of beer. Um, so <laughs> you, you gave us some good numbers before about fasting uh, glucose levels. What and, – and, you know, this when we're talking about measuring success not in terms of how you look or how toned you are or what, you know, clothing yep. size you are when it comes to exercise, um, let's get some more numbers that we can actually use to track success. Yep. What should my cholesterol levels be? So we're back to millimoles, baby. Uh, Total (laughs) cholesterol levels, ideally between about 3.6 and 5.2 millimoles per litre. Mm -hmm. LDL, lousy, bad cholesterol, 1.5 to 3.4. HDL, happy, helpful cholesterol, 1.0 to 2.0. Triglycerides, 0.5 to 1.7. Okay. Not very much. All right, repeat them back to me. Boom. <laughs> Total cholesterol, 3.6 to 5.2 millimoles. All right, you've been writing it down. Good stuff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, right. So as we say, this is the podcast about exercise. We're helping women who hate it do it more. Um, tell me how exercise can improve my lipids or my lipid profile. So there have been multiple, multiple studies that have 
shown that being sufficiently active, and I guess that's my biggest takeaway here, it's about being sufficiently active. It's not about being an athlete. Mm. Being sufficiently active moves your lipids in all the right directions. So a regular exercise program can increase your helpful HDL levels. It can help to reduce your harmful LDL levels, and it can help to reduce your triglycerides. And obviously that in conjunction with a healthy diet and moderation of your alcohol will absolutely move things in the right direction. Yeah. There's a uh, there's an article, a meta-analysis that I will pop a link to called Aerobic Exercise and Lipids and Lipoproteins in Women, a meta-analysis of randomised controlled trials. This was in the Journal of Women's Health. And it basically goes through exactly that, how a good exercise program will move all of those metrics in the right direction. Wow. That's incredible. At least, at least partially because, you know, you, exercise alone is not going to necessarily compensate for for a genetic profile that is, you know, pushing you in the in the direction of, of a poor lipid profile, mm-hmm. but it's something that you can modify. So, you know, they, they might only be small victories, but it's still a move in the right direction. Yeah. Th- like think about all the things that you can't control. Yeah. This is one thing that you actually can control. Absolutely. So be sufficiently active. <laughs> and remember that is 22 to 44 minutes a day of moderate physical activity. Something that I've popped up a few times in this episode, just as you were taking us through all those really fun medical words and introducing us to Churchill, um, was (laughs) this idea of balance. You know, like we are humans, we are busy women, exercise does not come naturally to us. It's something that we have to work at. Obviously, you know, Sarah and I every week are trying to, you know, suggest different ways, tips, tricks, things, you know, hacks, things that worked for us. that that idea of balance is so crucial, isn't it? Because, you know, at different times we are going to eat shitty foods. We are going to drink yeah, too yeah. much. We are going to do all the things that absolutely absolutely shouldn't do from a scientific or a health perspective, but, like, that's life um, and yeah. you have to enjoy it. But um, it comes back to one of my favourite, favourite sayings that if you are my friend, family or patient, you will hear me repeat ad nauseum, you get what you repeat. Yes. So it doesn't matter. Like, eat the pizza, have a cookie, skip a, you know, skip a workout. That stuff doesn't matter. It's about trying to eat a heart-healthy diet more often than not. Yes. It's about trying to drink in moderation more often than not. It's about trying to get a little bit more exercise than you used to because you get what you repeat. It's not about being perfect every damn day. Good, (laughs) because... Churchill still gets a workout, my friend. <laughs> I was going to say, I need to find a name not, for my liver. I have liver. not retired Churchill. <laughs> you know that better than anyone. So You're also my favourite drinking buddy, oh. best friend, business partner, drinking buddy. Oh, now that I know that Churchill's been with us the entire time, I mean, I wish you'd <laughs> that out of the can a bit earlier. How long have we known each other for? Uh, 12 years, 13, 13 15 years, years? Or something. Who knows? Yeah. yeah, okay, cool. This is the first moderation. time she's told me about Churchill, by the way. Anyway. A little bit of moderation. <laughs> Get what you repeat. Lipids. Progress, not perfection. <laughs> Lipids. Lipids. Triglycerides and other fun shit to say. Like You podcast is produced by me, Gab Burke, and music is by Hamish Camilleri. 
Thank you for listening and sharing our little pod. You can follow us on socials. Just search for Women Like You Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And you can leave us a review. If you can do that, that'd be awesome. It does help other women find our podcast. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at our website, which is womenlikeyoupodcast.com. Womenlikeyoupodcast.com. Sorry, I really like saying it. Yes. I'm so proud that we have a website. I know. I'm Sarah. And I'm Gab. Um, and... I just really need a name for my liver now, don't I? I feel so <laughs> right. inadequate. Let's uh, let's let's uh, let's let's, brain, let's, let's brainstorm. Let's idea brainstorm. shower. Idea shower. <laughs> oh, I do not like that. <laughs> I know it's no. so gross. No idea oh. showers. <laughs> um, <clears throat> <clears throat> could it be the Angela Merkel? Could I? Go I was going to say, let's yeah. name this after a strong, powerful, in- incisive woman <laughs> who has to put up with a lot of shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Merkel? Okay. Merkel. Mid Churchill. Churchill? <laughs> Mid Merkel. <laughs> and on that note, cheers. I love you. I'll see you I next week. I love you week. too. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it again. Big name in the water.